In a moment, we're going to read from Micah chapter 1. We're going to read uh, verses 2 through 9. And then, it's not in the bulletin, I, uh, I snuck another scripture passage in uh, between the, uh, the telling of the, uh, um, the bulletin and then the uh, and now. And the second reading is from Hebrews chapter 4. It's only um, a few verses, 14, 15, and 16 in Hebrews chapter 4. So we begin with Micah chapter 1, and then we're going to move to Hebrews chapter 4. But before we do, let's gather before the living God who has promised to speak to us through His Word, to show us the loveliness of Christ. Let's go to Him and ask Him for illumination, supernatural light to enlighten our minds. Gracious and Heavenly Father, it has been a busy week, O Lord, with many activities, and our mind has been at times pulled in all kinds of directions as we do the, uh, the work, the business of the week. We're not complaining, Heavenly Father, but it has been a busy week. But now, O Lord, we come into your house again for the evening worship. And we pray, O Lord, that you would refresh us by your Spirit, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and that you would continue to renew our wills so that we are willing and able to embrace Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you have not remained silent, but that you have spoken. In the past, you spoke to the prophets and the kings and the priests. But in our age, you have spoken most perfectly through Jesus Christ and the men that he appointed as apostles. And Father, we thank you for the witness of Scripture. We pray, O Lord, that it would speak to us as your Holy Spirit works in our minds and stirs our thoughts and moves our soul Father, we pray that you would feed us with this supernatural food, your word revealed. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Micah chapter 1, beginning at verse 2, and then Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and, he, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gather them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return." For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostracids. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. And then turning to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, we have a response to God's judgment. We have Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
So Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uh, about a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, I began this sermon series on Micah, and we read through this very passage and began with Micah chapter 1, verse 1, and I just sort of paused at Micah 1, chapter 1, or chapter 1, verse 1, and unfolded that first verse, and now we're continuing with it. We're continuing uh, through to, uh, from chapter, or verse 2 to verse 9. This is a hard passage. This is a hard passage. Uh, when I was selecting, I wanted to, to, uh, to do a, uh, an Old Testament series, and so I selected Micah. It seemed like a good length, and maybe that wasn't the best uh, criteria for choosing, but I was thinking it's like a, a decent length. And I began to read it and prepare for the sermons, and it is very heavy. This is a very challenging book. And I don't know if you feel challenged as you're listening to it and as you heard the uh, last time I was here, but it's a challenging book. It's challenging to our minds. It's challenging to our hearts. It's, it's a challenging book because it's all about Israel and its failures. It's not all about Israel and its failures, but a, big, a large part of it is Israel and its, and its, um, its failures. But it also is punctuated with great moments of, of hope because God reminds his people that they don't save themselves. They can't have their own righteousness. Their righteousness, their salvation, comes from God and God alone. Now, we don't necessarily hear that, that, that hope in this section, and that's why I've included Hebrews chapter 4 to remind us, to remind us that God is the great Savior, that He is merciful, and that He is the one who saves to the uttermost. I think we can all agree Criticism is difficult to receive. Criticism is difficult to receive. No one likes to receive criticism, especially when it's, it really hits home. Sometimes criticism is ill-founded, and we can dismiss it. You know, we know, oh, that person who's giving that, that criticism is a humbug. Maybe they, they've, they've got, they're out for me. And so I know whatever I say or do, they're always going to fall, find fault. And so I'm going to set aside their criticism because I don't believe it's valid. But there's other criticism. It comes from credible sources and people who love us maybe even, and they have criticism for us, and that can be challenging to hear. It can pierce our hearts. But hopefully God grants us the grace to hear the criticism, receive it gladly, and then to respond to it in faith. It's easy to give criticism, but hard to take. It's a real joy, perverse joy, to criticize others, isn't it? Oftentimes when we give criticism, we don't give criticism out of the goodness of our heart. We give criticism because there's this perverse thrill in tearing down other people. It's easy to give, but it's hard to take. It's usually no fun to hear a report of the things we are doing wrong. It stings. It can even hurt our feelings. And even men can have their feelings hurt. We might not want to admit it, but it can hurt our feelings too. But imagine the trouble that would ensue. Imagine for a moment, 
if you refuse to listen to good, sound, truthful criticism. Criticism of the parts of your life that require correction. Because let's face it, brothers and sisters, none of us is perfect. This side of glory, none of us is perfect. We all sin in thought and word and deed. If we say we are without sin, we are fooling ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all wrong, as 1 John chapter 1 promises. If the criticism was brought to you by someone you know and trust, your best interest and, um, and peace of mind would be to hear the criticism, especially if the criticism would lead to much-needed correction. You know, if it, if it was um, brought a new lease on life, you'd want to hear that criticism. You might not invite it, but once it comes, you'd want to hear it. Well, how are we at receiving criticism? Corporately, how, is, how are we as a church, you know, the, uh, the ARP, for 150 plus years, we have um, in the, the South, uh, our, our brothers to the South, have been engaged in um, uh, Freemasonry, 150 years. They, they love Christ, they, they preach the gospel, and they're involved in Freemasonry. How that occurs, I do not know. But they're, um, that, you know, the, the Northern brothers, have called the, uh, the Southern brothers to account and said, you need to examine this a little bit more closely. It's no fun to hear criticism. And the, the, the South really, you know, it was a challenge to them to hear that. But hopefully they are, are listening and they will respond. But how are we, so that's corporately, how's our church responding? But um, individually, individually, how are we doing as an individual congregation? Maybe there's, there's things that you as a church uh, need to look at and to correct. Do you receive that criticism well? And individually, as in each person in the congregation, how do we respond? I'm including myself here. I certainly am um, flawed, a, uh, um, a man who is uh, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, but I still am a sinner, as uh, Martin Luther pointed out, a saint who continues to sin. And by God's grace, those sins will come to light that we can mortify them. How do we receive correction? both individually, as a church, and as a church. How do we hear the truth about ourselves even when it's not flattering? And even when it may be a challenge to our basic, most cherished perceptions, how are we at hearing criticism? Put another way, do we see ourselves as perfect, as flawless, as above the law, beyond reproach. You know, do we have that, that um, sense? Years ago, like 20 years ago, I remember sharing the gospel with an older lady. She must have been about 80 at the time. And uh, her, her um, grandson was very concerned because she did not know Jesus Christ savingly. And so he asked me to come and to share the gospel. And like, you know, Ray Comfort teaches, I presented the, the Old Testament law first that moral law. And I went through the moral law and said, you know, have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Never. Okay. Have you ever um, misused the, uh, the, the, the Sabbath? Have you ever um, done something that you shouldn't have done on the Sabbath day? Never. All right. Have you always loved your neighbor? Yes. Have you ever thought murderous thoughts? Have you ever had lustful thoughts? And, you know, what list went on. And it turned out I was in the presence of a perfect saint. This godly woman had never sinned. It was remarkable as she looked in the mirror um, according to the word of God and in, in the moral law, she said that there was nothing that she was concerned about. She was perfect. 
She never sinned. Of course, she was under a strong delusion because the fact is we all sin in thought and word and deed. Those who are of the world sin without realizing it even. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But even saints who know Christ continue to sin. That was the, the heart cry of um, J.I. Packer. As a young man, he was converted to Jesus Christ and put his trust in, in, in Christ, but he was horrified to realize that even after conversion, he still said things and did things that were displeasing to God, and, and he despaired of it until he realized or he heard the doctrine of sanctification. That doctrine teaches us that there is still indwelling sin within each one of us. And by God's Holy Spirit and His grace, we can fight that good battle of scotching the snake within us, to killing um, sin within us. Well, as we will see in the scripture lesson from our Old Testament reading, the citizens of Israel, ancient Israel, regarded themselves as absolutely fabulous. They did not have a realistic view of themselves. They were looking at themselves only in the natural, in the external, and in the earthly. And they had failed to take account of their nature as it existed within themselves. They looked at their, their clothing, their homes, their business, and they said, we've arrived. We're prosperous. We're rich. Uh, life is good. They didn't take account of their hearts. Remember, Christ said that the, the heart of man is desperately wicked. It's desperately wicked. In other words, they had focused on their life in the realm of time and space and material existence, a realm in which they were highly successful. The Jews in Micah's day were highly successful. Their kingdoms dominated the region. The people were generally healthy and happy. And their economy was very productive. It was going like gangbusters. But the inner life of their soul and the condition of their moral state left much to be desired. But they ignored that. They were ignoring their inner life and its moral corruption, the sin that they nurtured within themselves. They were liars. They were idolaters. They were worshiping false gods. They didn't love their neighbor. They wished their neighbor ill. They didn't love God. They wanted to create a God of their own imagination. And for decades, ancient Israel had turned a blind eye to the moral corruption that lay at the heart of the nation and the heart of themselves. And as a result, the inner decay had increased and intensified in scope and degree, respectively. The Lord God Almighty had kept an eye on the problem within them and had sent faithful messengers, the prophets, who delivered to the people of Israel a series of divine warnings from heaven. That was the, the primary job of the prophets, to warn the people of the judgment of God, which was coming because of their sin. And then the prophets also pointed towards the Savior who could save them from God's judgment. Now, since those warnings had been ignored, the prophets had been ignored, the people continued to go on their merry way, the Lord himself would now deal with the problem directly. Micah tells us, the Lord God Almighty himself has left his throne in heaven, is coming to earth, and will bring a charge against his people. And that is guaranteed. 
It's also guaranteed that God's prosecution against sin is coming. But we also know that God is good and gracious. He's merciful and slow to anger and quick to forgive. And he is also the one who provides a savior for those who are struck by their indwelling sin and wish to be rescued from the wrath of God to come. There is a savior who can save to the uttermost all of those, all of those who cry upon to the Lord for salvation. And then Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16 tells us the good news is that God has sent a mediator to redeem us from our sins. So the structure of tonight's sermon is major point number one, the Lord's return and Israel's sin. The Lord's return and Israel's sin, verses two to seven. And then major point number two, the prophet's response, verses eight and nine. And then are we ready for the Lord's return? We're going to use the material in Hebrews chapter four for that final point. Major point number one, the Lord's return and Israel's guilt. Yes, the Lord is returning. Jesus Christ, the King, is coming again. We don't know the day or the hour in which he comes, but he has promised to come, and he will judge, and he will redeem, and he will bring his people back to heaven, but he will judge those on earth who are not united to Christ savingly. How do we respond when we receive valid criticism? This is a question I asked at the beginning. Individually and corporately, how do we respond when somebody points out a flaw within us or a sin? You know, when, when you're elders, that's part of the job of an elder, is to come to you, first um, um, just himself, but then if, you know, if there's resistance, a, a witness, to come and, uh, and tell you something. Maybe you don't like to hear it. That's part of the work of the, the elder. We, we do that uh, occasionally. We have to do home visits because of something that's going on, a, a noticeable sin, and so we go. Not in, in um, sternness and, and, and anger, but in, um, in love and grace. Brother, we see something that we're concerned about. Or sister, we're concerned about a, a sin with, uh, that we see, and, and we want to, to, um, to, to call your attention to this, that you might repent. How do we receive criticism? Well, let's take a look at how Israel received criticism when God delivered criticism to her. In verse 2, the Lord God Almighty announces that he has a legal dispute against all people of the world. He's got a legal dispute against all people of the world because all people, without exception, have sinned. We are all descended from Adam. Adam sinned, and because he was the federal head, we all have sinned. So the dispute that God has is with all people everywhere every continent, every nation, every people, every tongue is under God's condemnation. In verse three and four, God then leaves his heavenly throne and comes to earth to prosecute the trial against all the people of the earth. This is an extraordinary moment. He says, watch me, I'm coming down. My feet are going to step on the highest places on earth. These are the, the, the citadels of sin, the, the places where people have most profaned the name of God. The people were told to look, the Lord was coming. He left his heavenly throne and was trampling the heights of the earth where his people had built shrines to false gods. People love false gods. They love to worship the, the gods of their own imagination. 
And God says, enough. I'm coming and I'm putting an end to this. As a consequence of his coming, the mountains would melt beneath his feet and flow into the river like wax in a fire, like water pouring down a hill. Have you ever lit, in, lit a big candle and, um, and the, the wax builds up and then the, uh, the little wall um, melts and all that wax pours down? And that's the image that uh, God gives us of the earth. When God comes, the earth itself and its foundation will be like melted wax. This is the power of the living God. And no one and nothing can stop his judgment. Why was it necessary for the Lord God Almighty to come down to earth? Why did he come? What prompted him? The answer is quite shocking, really. The answer is shocking. And I want you to listen because it is very relevant to us today. Why was this happening? Why was God coming? Was it the rebellion of, of the people of the world? Was it the rebellion of all mankind? Is that why he was coming? He was going to punish the people of the world because they'd all sinned? Now listen to what he says. Because of the rebellion of Israel. Yes, the sins of the whole nation of Israel, the Old Testament church. He was coming because of their failure. Who was to blame for Israel's rebellion? Why, it was Samaria, its capital city. And where was the center of idolatry in Judah to the south? Well, it was in Jerusalem, its capital city. You see, you see, the Old Testament church was to be a beacon of light to all mankind. It was to be the place from which the good news of God's salvation was declared far and wide. And Israel had failed. In the north, Samaria, they had failed to declare the excellencies of God to the nations. And in the south, they'd also failed to declare the excellencies of God to the nations. They had failed in their worship. They had added to the worship of God. The worship of God was clearly laid out in Leviticus. The, the sacrifices, the temple worship, had all been clearly laid out, given directions. And like Nadab and Abihu, the people of God followed their own course. And God was saying, the reason why mankind is in the dreadful state that it's in is because of you, the Old Testament church. Verse 5 then explains the reason for God's displeasure, why he must prosecute the trial against the whole earth. This, it's, it's truly shocking. Israel, the chosen people, are berated by God for their sins. Let me explain by way of illustration uh, the seriousness of this. When I was a kid, fathers would often take the oldest son aside. The, the, the father would take the oldest sons aside if the father had a male child, and the father would impress upon his oldest son the importance and gravity of his position in life. He would sit him down and say, Son, you carry the family name. What you do affects all the family, so behave. I'm, I was, I'm the baby, so I didn't get that, um, that stern uh, message. But my older brother did. I can remember my father sitting him down and uh, he spoke to Paul and said to Paul, you know, you, you need to, uh, you're carrying the family name. Behave yourself. Don't ruin the family name. Now, some eldest sons did ruin their family name. 
They wandered from the path of moral rightness and chased after the rewards and pleasures of this world. They were like the prodigal son. And sooner or later, the father would, wa um, would uh, watch and uh, call his boy up on the proverbial carpet and chasten his son. This would happen regularly. Verbally or corporally, they would be chastened. And if the offense was warranted, um, it might be a corporal um, discipline that was administered. It's quite shocking sometimes. I remember hearing about um, the father taking the, the kid out to the, the woodshed. It, was, uh, it struck fear. I'm not saying this is the way to do it. I'm just saying that was the old way. You know, fathers would say, behave or else. If the father was, good, was a good man, then he disciplined his wayward eldest son with a view to correct the moral failure and set the son back on the right path that the son might flourish. But of course, it can't be all law. And grace ought to be applied, must be applied. And so the gospel can't be lost in this scenario. But that's the way things were in the past. Well, Israel was a profligate son who'd ruined the family name. That is God's holy name. Israel had failed her, her heavenly father. And, and God was disturbed, to say the least. What would God do in light of Israel's sin? Of the judgment of Israel by the God of righteousness, John Calvin wrote, it's a long quote, but it's worth hearing in its entirety. We know how thoughtlessly the Jews were wont to boast that God dwelt in the midst of them. And this presumption so blinded them that they despised all the prophets, for they thought it unlawful that anything should be said to their disgrace. Because, after all, they were the holy people of God, his holy heritage, his holy and chosen nation. Inasmuch then as the Lord had adopted them, they falsely boasted of his favor. Since then, the prophets knew that the people were insolently gloried in those privileges with which they had been honored by God. He now declares, Micah declares that God would be the avenger of impiety from his holy temple in heaven. We hence see that the prophet beats down the foolish arrogance by which the Jews were inflamed. It's a long quote, but it's very colorful and it helps to explain what was going on in Micah. The people of God had gotten bold. They had grown arrogant. And in their arrogance, they had gotten sloppy. And they looked at all the grace that God had given them, and they said, we deserve it. We've earned this. God's favor, he owes it to us. They'd gotten very arrogant. And Micah had come along, or was, was sent, to correct them of this arrogance. What do they have that God had not given them? What blessings did they enjoy that, did, that didn't come from the hand of God? John Calvin points out that the people of, of the Old Testament church had grown overconfident and assumed that since they were the chosen people of God, that they had been given a special license to do as they pleased. But the blessings were given as a privilege. It meant that they had a weightier 
burden on themselves. They were to walk in the fear and admonition of the Lord before all men. And God would grant them to grace, the grace to do that if they submitted to God's will. Well, they hadn't. They just run riot. They just did their own thing. The Old Testament church of Israel was like the person whom God blesses with many natural talents, who then assumes that they are superior to other people because of the wealth of their personal talents. God has granted them these talents, and they think, well, I, I, I'm owed it, and other people should praise me because of my talents. Rather than use those God-given talents to glorify God, they use their talents instead to glorify themselves, essentially stealing glory from their maker and attributing it to themselves. Such a person forgets who gave them those natural gifts. In so doing, they ignore the lesson of Moses. Remember Moses, Moses' temperament. Moses was blessed beyond all measure in the privileges he'd received from God. But Moses never allowed the blessings to inflate his ego. Instead, Moses was the humblest of men. He was the most blessed spiritually, naturally. He was a very gifted man, and yet he was the humblest of men. Moses was the humblest of men, and this made him a true servant of the living God. Timothy Eaton, many of you will recognize that name. Timothy Eaton was a great Canadian businessman of uh, two centuries ago now. Timothy Eaton was a man of faith whom God blessed with a remarkable knack for business. Some people have it. Some people just have like the Midas touch. You know, they, they put their mind to business and, and things start working and, and they are really blessed. And so he was able, he was one of those kind of men. He was able to, uh, to build up an incredible wealth. He used his gift the gift of business to build a very successful retail company that amassed an enormous fortune over time. It spanned the nation of Canada. If maybe, uh, you know, if you're old enough, you uh, recall um, the Eaton uh, businesses all over the place, beautiful stores. But Timothy Eaton never forgot the God who had blessed him with the knack for business. The same thing couldn't be said of Timothy Eaton's children and his, great, and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. They focused on their earthly blessings and less on the God who granted them. While the original Eaton were, was devoted to the Lord and serving him, he was actually a, a, a Sunday school superintendent and served every Sunday in Sunday school, teaching the children. That's how much he loved God. Even though he was a big, successful businessman, he loved to serve God in a humble fashion. So while the original Eaton was devoted to the Lord and served him, his offspring were devoted to serving themselves and their own desires. Brothers and sisters, I would submit that that is the church in North America today. That is the church in North America today. We are blessed. I'm not just picking on the ARP or even the Reformed and Presbyterian branches or even Protestantism. I'm talking about the church um, worldwide in all its uh, manifestations, all the branches. We've been blessed in North America beyond all measure. And yet what have we done with our blessings? How often as Christians we assume that we deserve it, that we have earned it, and yet, doesn't everything come from the hand of God? Do we receive our gifts 
humbly and, and use them according to God's will? Or do we lavish ourselves with all kinds of trinkets and pleasures? You know, I deserve it. Israel had been profusely blessed, but for some time she'd failed to use her gifts, her blessings, to glorify her Lord and Savior and to care for the neighbor in her midst. Instead, she used her blessings to praise herself. And in effect, she turned religion, the true religion, into an exercise in self-praise, self-congratulation, self-glorification, and self-gratification. Israel had wandered far from the standard of holiness which God had established for his people when he made them a nation under Abraham. They had wandered far. God had given his people the prophets and the peop that the people might know the truth through the prophets. He had given them priests that they might know God's righteousness and have men who could intercede when they failed to walk in the ways of righteousness. And God had also sent them kings to rule over them, to subdue their enemies, but also to give them guidance. Yet despite all of these privileges, all of these provisions, and many others besides that we can name, Israel had grown self-satisfied and had sinned against God. And in the days of Micah and Isaiah, God took seriously the sins of the northern kingdom of Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah. And true to his word, he came down to earth to prosecute the people of Samaria and Judah. As he had warned them again and again and again, the northern kingdom fell, never to be recovered. Finally, and then the southern kingdom too, was eventually invaded and the people taken away. God was true to his word. Finally, in verse six and seven, we are given a fuller description of the Lord's plan. Micah pronounced the solemn warning to Samaria and Judah, this is a paraphrase. So I, the Lord, will make the city of Samaria a heap of ruins. Her streets will be plowed up for planting vineyards. I will roll the stones of her walls into the valley below, exposing her foundations. All her carved images will be smashed. All her sacred treasures will be burned. These things were, brought with the, were bought with the money earned by her prostitution, and they will now be carried away to pay prostitutes elsewhere. A chilling, chilling message. Well, how does the prophet respond to this? He's heard the judgments of God. How will he respond? Major point number two, the prophet's response. The prophet isn't indifferent to Israel's condition. He doesn't turn a blind eye to the sin and misery of his people. He listens carefully. He endures their sorrows with them. Consider how the prophet Micah responds to the Lord's approach. He hears that the Lord is coming and to judge the nations. And how does Micah respond? How should any sane human being respond? Because his response is given to us as edifying and an edifying example, we should pay attention to it. Isaiah, or Micah rather, writes, therefore I will mourn and lament. This is Micah talking. I will mourn and lament. I will walk around barefoot and naked. 
I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl, for my people's wound is too deep to heal. It has reached into Judah, even to the gates of Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, the, the, the prophet was not indifferent to the sufferings of his people. He heard the warning of God that God's judgment would fall upon the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and he moaned and wailed. It broke his heart. The thought of his people who he loved and who he led coming under God's judgment filled Micah with grief. He was sad. The reaction of, Lord's, of the Lord's servant is worth paying attention to. First, the prophet will grieve inwardly when he witnesses the suffering of his people. He says, I'll mourn, I'll lament. Next, he'll mourn outwardly when he witnesses the suffering of his people. He's, uh, Micah says that he will walk around barefoot. He's not going to live a life of comfort as long as his people are in dire straits. He's going to um, go through the suffering with them. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. Why? Because he's heard the wounds that God will afflict on the people. And it fills him full of grief when he thinks about how God's judgment is coming. For my people's wound is too deep to heal. It has reached into Judah, even to the gates of Jerusalem. See, uh, Micah loved his people. He was a good priest and a good prophet, and he suffered along with them. He knew that his people were in for a chastening. It was a chastening that they had dearly earned for after decades of sinning, after centuries of ignoring God. Finally, God was sending himself down to waken the people up. I mean, what do you do? I work with street people all the time. I, I see drunks and addicts all the time, all the time. How do you reach them? They're addicted to substance. They're ruining their lives. You know, they, the, um, the opioids, they just scratch their, their faces. They'll scratch the skin off of themselves. It's horrific to watch. You can't reach them. They're, they're irrational. They just will not listen. I mean, they're obvious. They're obvious, the, the addicts and the drunks are obvious, delusional people. But what do you say about other people when you share the gospel with them? And they're, they're tidy, they're neat, they've got good homes, they've got good businesses, they're good, decent people, but they will not hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will not receive the grace of Christ. They will not listen, they will not bow their knee to the true God. What do you do with these people? What do you do with them? What do you do with the church? Thinking about the church worldwide, not picking on any denomination in particular, what do you do with the church that knows the grace of God, that loves Jesus Christ, that knows the gospel, but still is wayward? You know, we just read about how we prayed that, or we sang in prayer, that God would fetter us to himself. A fetter is a, a, something that locks we're basically, when we, we sing in that, we're saying, God, I know myself well enough. I know my propensity. I know that I'm inclined to sin, so fetter me to yourself. Chain me to you through the work of the Holy Spirit that I might be righteous according to your way. Micah was heartbroken when he understood that his people were going to be chastened, and they were. 
But our hope is not in Micah or in priests or in ministers or in pastors. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the great Savior. Listen again to Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Our confession in what? Our confession in Jesus Christ as Lord. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Brothers and sisters, we have a Savior who has been tempted like us in every way, and whereas we have failed to walk the moral line, He never failed. He was always righteous, always did what was right, always lived the holy life. Something that no human being could do on His own, Jesus Christ accomplished in His body of flesh according to His reasonable mind, because He truly is the one and only Savior. He's able to sympathize with our weakness in every respect, but has never been tempted as we are. He was without sin. Let us then, the writer of Hebrews say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The encouragement is that when we are in trouble, when we are tempted to sin, when we are prone to wander, to come before the living God to the throne of grace and pray that God would be merciful. And we know that He is merciful. He is so good. And He is the one who sent a Savior to us that we might know God and know Him richly. Are we ready for Christ, in summary? Are we, or um, in uh, um, conclusion, are we ready for Christ? He's coming, and we will meet Him. Each one of us, all human beings, will meet Jesus Christ, either in this world when He comes again, if we're still alive, or in the world to come when we stand before Him in judgment. Either we will meet Him after we die, or we will meet Him, we will enter into His presence. Sorry, I'll say that again. Either we will meet Him after we die and we will enter into His presence, or we will meet Him if He should come down during our lifetime. Jesus is coming again. Are we prepared? In either instance, there are only two possibilities. You meet Him as your Savior, bow your knee to Him, and kiss the feet of the Savior because He alone is Lord and He is gracious to save and you love Him. Or, the second option, you meet Him as your judge, the all-powerful one who knows all about you, has seen everything that you do, even in the dark of night, knows your desires, the desires of your heart. The Bible says that day or night is to, as day to Him. He sees everything. He knows everything. And He has the power to judge the everlasting soul and to cast it into hell. For those who meet Christ as their Savior, then their meeting of Him will be the beginning of eternal bliss in heaven, wherein they will enjoy full, complete, and perfect fellowship with not only the eternal Son, but also with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. It'll be wonderful. 
For those who meet Christ as their judge, then their meeting with him at the judgment seat in the, light, in the, the day to come, that day will mark the first moment in a series of unending moments stretching into eternity with no end in which the wrath of God will be poured out on their bodies and soul forever and ever and ever. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ savingly and are resting in his finished work on the cross, sorry, if you do know the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ savingly and are resting in his finished work on the cross, then rejoice, rejoice. This is a blessed gift for your reward is great both now, but especially in heaven. Now you enjoy the benefits of justification, adoption, and sanctification in the Lord. When you die, you can look forward to more benefits as you enjoy perfect and complete fellowship with the living God. You will be made perfect in holiness. You will immediately enter into glory while your bodies rest in the grave until the bodily resurrection. And supposing that you do die before Christ's return, then at the resurrection, your everlasting soul will be united to your glorified body. You will be raised to glory. You shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted at the judgment seat of Christ and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. If you are savingly united to Christ, that's what you have to look forward to. And the benefits begin even now because you know the love of God and his blessings here and now. But I must issue this warning because I'm charged as a sacred duty to warn everyone of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power and glory. If you do not know Christ savingly and you die in your sins, then the reverse of what I just described will occur. You, live, you will live in the misery of your sin here and now, and at death, your soul will be separated from your body to await the final judgment. And on the day of the Lord's judgment, after you are examined by Jesus Christ who knows you perfectly, you will be cast away by him from God's blessed presence. And you will be hurled into the lake of fire which can never be quenched where you will remain for all eternity with God's wrath, your constant companion. There are two choices. We either bow our knee to Christ here and now and receive all the blessings that God has promised through his Savior, or we meet God at some future date where judgment will occur and we meet him with all our sins upon him. But why do that? Why, why meet God with all your sins upon you? Christ is the gracious one. He is slow to anger. He is quick to forgive. He demonstrated his great love, his great mercy by dying on the cross for sinners, taking upon himself their sins, dying in their place, receiving God's curse in his body of flesh that he might liberate them from the wrath of God to come. He loves his people and he calls everyone everywhere, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ is the great savior. Let us bow our knees to him in humble adoration.
And may God grant us the grace to rest in Christ, His person and His works, for the glory of God and for our eternal pleasure. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for Micah and for his stern warning against uh, the arrogance of the North American church and for um, his um, warning against the, the, the church of Israel in the past and for the warning of everyone everywhere. We cannot live our life on our own, O oh, Heavenly Father. Father, we pray that you would impress this upon each heart here tonight, that we would know that there is a living God who sees all and who knows all. And Father, we pray that your grace would be sufficient to move hearts to the throne of grace where they might uh, be with Christ and enjoy his fellowship forever and ever and ever. And Father, we thank you for the sacrament of, of the Lord's Supper, which is a clear declaration of the peace that you provide in and through Jesus Christ, the new life that we receive through Jesus Christ, the blessings that we receive through Jesus Christ. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would minister to us through this sacrament. We pray in his name. Amen.